Mir, the druid in my campaign, was raised by hags. He calls them his aunties, and I think this is just a brilliant setup by the player for a, a fairly unique character. And when we were beginning session one, I wanted to give him some added insight as a result of that fascinating backstory and relationship. And so they told him this about the island of Skagros, where the game begins. They told him that it used to be a mountain millennia ago that sank beneath the waves and only the very top of the mountain remained, and that a guardian spirit had been placed there, but when the waters came and when the mountain sunk, that spirit became trapped there, and over the course of a thousand years, it became strange as a result of its isolation. And they said, whatever sleeps there does not sleep well. What I think is worth noting about that is none of that was true until I thought about paying off this one character's backstory. I hadn't made up any thoughts about how old the island was. I hadn't ever thought that it had been a mountain that had sunk beneath the waves. I hadn't thought that there was a guardian spirit that has become foul over time, isolated alone. All of that was a function of me thinking about this character of Mir, thinking about his aunties, what they might know, thinking about what then should be the intersection between the advice they would give and the tone and tempo that I wanted for the setting. And as a result, we come up with this storyline. And I think that's worth noting because the process of creating these things for me is rarely a linear one where... I've thought of everything and I've got my entire backstory up front and then once the characters intersect with it, they just find out things that I've already known. Quite the opposite actually. There's plenty of times where based on the the information the characters bring to the table and their tone and and their sort of stance, other things in my setting will change and be developed as a result so that we've got some interesting points of context. Session one was a big success, I think. We had a, a wonderful night of dealing with pirate chases and battles in the jungle and strange goings-on. Overall, I think there was a, a lot still to be learned from it, and that's what we're going to cover here in this episode of Anatomy of a Campaign, where we delve into what actually happened in session one. From the first moment I was describing the scenario at the top of the evening up until I said we're going to end it here, it was about staying ahead of and escaping from these pirates. And they never actually saw a pirate. What they saw throughout the session were lantern lights breaking across the sand dunes. They would hear the pirates shouting to each other. They would hear the pirates actually being killed in the jungle by scarier things. But they never actually laid eyes on a pirate, and they certainly never got to directly uh, fight any of the pirates. Probably the, the closest thing that came to engagement was when the pirate captain telepathically contacted the sorcerer in our game, because I just needed to have some opportunities for role-playing to break up the non-stop tension and pressure of the jungles trying to kill you, the pirates are getting closer, there are things here, the, the grung encounter, all these different things that happen through session one. 
because I knew a lot of the first session was going to be a function of deciding where to go on the island, I created a 100-foot scale hex map using a program called HexKit, uh, which I highly recommend. It's, it's not that expensive, and it makes these beautiful hex maps very um, colorful. They're hand-drawn tiles, and it just, I think, really helped me to not put a battle map in front of them immediately, but to have this 100-foot scale hex map that I think facilitated decision-making around should we head back down the beach to where the pirates are? Should we go try to hide in the rocky crags to the east? Should we head south to the jungle line? That coupled with dynamic lighting within the Roll20 framework gave a very claustrophobic feel. When we start, it's nighttime, things are dark, and visibility is somewhat limited, even though the majority of characters have dark vision in the campaign. Most of them only have a 60, or in the case of the Shadow Sorcerer, a 120-foot view, and it just allows them to see pretty much the next hex until they got to the jungle when I used dynamic lighting to cut their view down to only the hex they're in. I've never run a, camp, a, a game where we so were so focused on a hex map that was on such a small scale. I've certainly had games where we were looking at more of a campaign level map where you've got like 24 mile hexes that the characters are kind of deciding how to move. And of course, that's not for anything close to uh, an entire session, but I would say we spent... 70% of the time in the session with the graphic up on the screen being this hex map. That was until there, there was the fight in the jungle. Player decisions were very much about where to go and the role-playing that would occur between the characters, because again, these aren't characters who all know each other extensively. For the most part, the backgrounds only tangentially connected them. And so there, we started with a little bit of mistrust, um, a lot of doubt. We had a number of players who were focused on really role-playing the downside of their personalities in this situation, which I thought made for a very fun session. Overall, among the five players, to recap, we have a tiefling sorcerer named Calda, who was really being suboptimally sub played to perfection, as someone who's a bit of a nervous wreck, who was constantly saying, hey, maybe we can go negotiate with these pirates. Should we be going into the jungle? And I don't think his character was at all pro-delve into the jungle at night. Then we also had uh, Voss, who's the shadow sorcerer, the fallen Asamir shadow sorcerer. And she was this very blunt character who started to berate the dwarf for having short stubby legs and uh, can you are you able to keep up they put her in front because she has the the best dark vision later on that would really play against her in a, in a pretty profound way and leads me to what i think is the most controversial point of the session which i'll come to later constantine played by my friend Mike, is this dwarf, and dwarfs in my campaign are almost extinct. He plays him with a Russian accent, and I thought he just did this amazing job of portraying this character who was constantly being berated, in a way, by some of the other characters, because 
he was in possession of this iron coffer that they had taken from the pirates. And everyone sort of believed that the pirates were after them because of the small metal box, as well as they were able to track them because of it. There was this almost unerring accuracy to the pirates' ability to follow them into the jungle, and they deduced, I think smartly, though inaccurately, that it was the coffer that maybe the pirate captain was able to scry. And then there was what I consider to be the two players who were who were really able to tactically save them throughout the night. Uh, Bren, the half-orc mercenary, played by my cousin Joe, and uh, Mir, the druid, who I mentioned at the top of the uh, of the audio journal. And those two characters and players, while everyone else was uh, chewing the scenery a bit with their personalities, were the ones who were actually taking care of business when the danger came into play, and I think were functionally responsible for them surviving what was probably a bit of an unbalanced encounter once they got into combat. So the summary blow-by-blow blow is we begin on the beach. The pirates are coming across the sand dunes. All they can see are these lantern lights. That, that was sort of the visual mnemonic I was able to use to say, okay, they're getting closer there. And, and in the, the dark nighttime convey the fact that these pirates seem to have a almost supernatural level of precision in following them. They're a much smaller group. They were doing pretty good on their stealth rolls. And so it became clear that this was not a normal pursuit. The party didn't flounder, obviously, in the beginning. I think it was all a function of role-playing, but they couldn't really decide exactly which direction to go, but they felt the pressure that they had to make a decision, and so they decided to go south towards the jungle. And it was the druid character who, I believe, kicked off the charge. He's the only human in the group. He's the only one that actually can't see at night that well. And so they universally, based purely on the sorcerer's ability to, to see farther in the dark, um, I can't recall if it's a function of the Asimir or the Shadow Sorcerer subclass, but she has 120 feet of dark vision, and so they decided, let's put her in front, which, as I mentioned before, turned out to be kind of a bad decision, certainly for the Shadow Sorcerer. So they they head south, and they're moving hex by hex, and I don't think there was complete consensus on exactly how to go about it or what direction south, because the hexes don't exactly line up perfectly, they wanted to go. They wound up skirting these rocky crags. Luckily for them, I didn't roll well on my random counter, because unbeknownst to the players, there's all manner of kobolds in those rocky crags. But they, they managed to get through that unscathed. They get into the jungle where I cut their view down to that limiting one hex, and they managed to stumble into a trap uh, set by a bunch of grung that are living in, in, the, in the deeper jungle. Luckily for them, their perception checks, or their passive perception was high enough, or I should say the grung's stealth check was low enough, that they did not get a, a surprise round, meaning the grungs did not get a surprise round on the party. But because they put the squishiest, the shadow sorcerer character first, they were surrounded by about a dozen of these creatures. She was on point right in the middle. Actually, if she had continued even one more square south, she would have walked into their net trap and been in a world of hurt. But instead, what happened was the Grung all attacked from all sides, 
it turns out that I didn't roll so well against everyone else in the party. In fact, I don't think I hit anyone else, or if I did, I hit maybe one other person for a small amount of damage. But right off the bat, I hit her and do uh, an, a, a fairly large amount of damage for any first level character, but especially for a sorcerer who only has a d6 hit die. Luckily, she had designed her character in a way that I never would have. She had almost exclusively defensive spells in her spell slots, and she used them both going into the encounter. So she has mage armor and she has false life, which is giving her temporary hit points. And that pretty much saved her life in that moment. But then, as this fairly short battle progressed, my dice continued to be hot against her. And I was in a very strange position, and it's the controversial point I alluded to before. I had to make the call to actually fudge dice rolls so as not to kill or drop the sorcerer early in this battle. So let's talk about that. My reasoning, and I don't think I consciously came to the conclusion in the moment, but how do you deal with fudging dice rolls? Do you do it? And in my case, the answer is obviously yes, because I did do it. And the reason I was okay doing it was, number one, I had already gone through an entire round of combat, and I certainly didn't fudge any rolls there. I didn't hold back. She was already hit. She was hit pretty hard. The reason I felt good about fudging the dice rolls at least in that battle, I think there were two other times that I had to turn a hit into a miss or turn a big damage roll into a small damage roll was because absolutely none of this was her fault. She didn't decide to be point person in the marching order for the party. That was everyone else who kind of decided to do that. Uh, number two, the entire encounter was probably a little unbalanced, intentionally so, and I'm okay with that as well. She was trying to escape and retreat, and like I said, she had designed her character for maximum survivability and gave her false life and had the forethought to cast it on herself. Now you may say, well, obviously, what would be the point of having false life if you don't cast it on yourself in these kind of situations? But what I'm saying is a lot of players forget to even cast mage armor when they have it. They just kind of plow forward. They don't want to use their spell slots. While they were back on the beach, she had cast the spell. So I thought the player did everything right. I thought the situation uh, she was in was more a function of the decisions the other players had made. And if I had allowed her to drop, I think it would have been fairly catastrophic because they weren't capable of handling the grungs, really, because I had thrown so many of them at them. And honestly, if she had dropped, I don't know how they would have gotten to her in time to either save her or or what have you, and I, I don't think they would have left her behind, and I could have had something close to a TPK on my hands if they had stayed as a group rather than run, which was the smart thing to do. And so, for the sake of everyone's fun at the table, and especially this one player who I sensed was getting disheartened by the fact that she got hit right up front, it was important to give a little bit of a respite on my crazy hot die rolls. I couldn't roll anything below a 17 against her. Following the Grung battle, I introduced two more elements inside the jungle. One to see if I could tempt the players into a more dangerous situation, and another that I think was setting up what would, ultimate, uh, would ultimately be and will ultimately be in the next session, the primary threat inside the jungle itself. They came across a massive crater, 
I described it like a, a big divot in the ground as if there had been an ancient meteor strike here. And the pit went far enough down that it went beyond even the shadow sorcerer's dark vision. And what's just fascinating is watching players in this kind of situation, some of their members are injured, they're reduced by a couple of different resources, they're pursued by pirates, they've got these weird little frog, evil frog creatures that are hunting them in the jungle. Watching them decide, as D&D players, do we want to delve down into this hole in the ground? And I described that there were these strange sounds emanating from deep below. And, you know, I, I heard a, a, a quote recently from, from another podcast where they said one of their players explained when someone was one of their other, one of the other team members was trying to get them all to sneak around a beholder lair. They said, look, I don't come here every week to not fight beholders. I thought that was just brilliant. And I could see that playing out in my game, although not with beholders, just literally a hole in the ground. And it was like, they were saying, Hey, I don't play this game to not go look into dangerous holes in the middle of the jungle. In the end, I think cooler heads prevailed and they decided to go around the crater than, than down into it. So they avoided that. And that would have just led them to the goblin warrens. Uh, I'm sorry, the kobold warrens. And they decided to go around the crater and, and deeper into the jungle where they encountered, and I discussed this uh, in the last audio journal, this thing which is effectively fighting an undead skeleton or zombie but isn't really undead. It's basically a corpse that's being animated by the living jungle, by these vines that intertwine throughout it. And kind of on the fly during the session, I also decided to, to couple this with blocking terrain because the vines that are necessary to animate these undead kind of create a wall that only the smallest creature would have a chance to really get through. If they try to move through it, it'll be like moving through an entangle spell. They went around it and then I was able to describe behind them the sounds of the pursuing pirates screaming in agony as presumably this these sort of uh, vine animated corpses are, are slaughtering some of the pirates. At this point in the session, I felt I needed to really up the ante a little bit and break up the, uh, I don't want to say monotony because I don't think it ever got monotonous, but to just break the direct tension of being just pursued by these unseen pirates. And the captain of the pirate ship, Captain Nupo, telepathically contacted the Shadow Sorcerer. I, sp I specifically picked the Shadow Sorcerer because I think she would enjoy the interaction and how she would handle the kind of offer that she was getting from the Pirate Captain. Ahead of time, I had decided that the Pirate Captain, Nupo, was actually a warlock and that she had a uh, Quasit familiar. And the Quasit was nearby and allowing her to use her telepathy to sort of... Um, piggyback it closer to the Shadow Sorcerer, even though Captain Nupo wasn't that close. And they were able to have a really interesting exchange. Uh, it was a lot of fun, as Nupo is attempting to get the Shadow Sorcerer to give up the dwarf. Constantine, my played by my friend Mike, has this metal coffer I've mentioned, and that is the MacGuffin. It's locked, no one knows what's inside of it, and it's kind of a big mystery. And that's all that Captain Nupa wants. She wants Constantine and she wants the iron coffer. 
And damn if the players did not consider, at least through role-playing, uh, giving it up. They laughed about it at the end of the night when we were sort of uh, finished playing and just recapping. But in the moment, I think legitimately, because again, these players have not all played together before. Uh, Mike playing Constantine, I don't think was 100% sure that they wouldn't land on giving him up. Uh, I think the, uh, the players behind Voss and Calda were pretty convincing in being scared and nervous about the scenario. In the end, though, they decided to stand by their friend and not uh, negotiate with the pirate. The players and the characters were heading towards a boat that was hidden in the jungle by the druid character. It's a very, very small boat, and I think when they actually try to sail it, if they ever get to that point, they're going to be unpleasantly surprised by what it's like to try to navigate in a tiny boat with five people. But for now, that, that was the plan, that they needed to get to the place where Mir, the druid, had hidden his boat on the island. At this point, there were a lot of different stealth and hiding checks. They actually broke from the jungle and could see a lot more pirate lanterns moving in their direction, so they were forced to retreat back into the jungle. Now they're carrying this boat. It's a small two-person canoe, essentially. But they, they come back into the jungle, and they hide, and they hide for about an hour, uh, hoping that the pirates will move past them. And I mentioned before that Captain Nupo has a familiar, and that familiar is how, in my head, they were actually tracking them. Because it's a quasit, it's capable of becoming invisible, it's capable of changing shape, it's capable of doing a bunch of different things that would make it very hard to detect. And what was really strange for me was the players almost never asked, hey, I, can I look around and see if I spot anything? So they weren't making perception checks. It was purely passive perception, and this thing clearly would have the ability to get past passive perception, I think, in a jungle. And so from a stealth perspective, I would have given it advantage. Like I said, it could be invisible. They had absolutely no idea this thing was the thing that was allowing them to be tracked so effectively because it was telepathically communicating with Captain Nupo who's sending her men around the jungle specifically where they are, when in truth, they should have all been lost. So the other semi-controversial thing that I don't like to do is I, I much prefer when players figure things out on their own, but I sort of realized that I had backed myself into a corner because if they never discovered that they were being tracked via this familiar, we were going to be in a really hard position because the players would almost never be able to get a respite. And I got the sense that while tension is great and feeling the pressure of the moment is great, you also need to have these breaks. And if they couldn't get away from the constant threat of being discovered by a whole horde of a dozen or two dozen pirates, we just weren't going to be able to have a great session. So I kind of had the, I asked the wizard character to make an arcana check. And as a result of that, because they knew about the telepathy and because this was an acolyte character who was supposed to be well-trained in the mystic arts coming up in the Wizards College from Ravenest, uh, which is uh, a bigger city in the, in the campaign world, he rolled really, really well. I don't think he got a natural 20, but he got pretty close to it. I think his roll came up, came up to something like a 26. And so I kind of explained that he would know very likely the only way that Nupo would be capable of telepathically communicating at this distance 
with um, a Voss, the shadow sorcerer, was likely a function of bridging things via a um, via a familiar. That that was one very likely. I didn't say it was the only way, but very likely way that that this could happen, and it could be possible that they had a familiar the. Uh, Captain Nupo's familiar near them. I don't like to do that. I think that's a little bit of giving it all away and sort of explaining things to them as opposed to letting them figure it out on their own. I think it's not great game uh, mechanics at play, but I just felt it was necessary. And as a result, they all start making perception checks. And of course they are, and with all of them making the checks, they're able to get a sense of this familiar. And I also said once they uh, they said, hey, look around, see if you can spot the thing. I had the familiar break cover and make a run for it, at which point they summarily shot it out of the sky. But the pirates are still coming, so they have to go back into the jungle. They hide, like I said, for about an hour. And then they they send the shadow sorcerer again, because she has the superior dark vision, to kind of scout around and see if the pirates are anywhere near them again, I thought was an interesting choice. And by interesting, I mean dangerous for the squishy shadow sorcerer. And this is where we ended the night because what she discovered was not the pirates, but the fact that the living jungle had actually surrounded them in that time that they spent hiding. There were all these corpses dangling from vines in various states. Some of them were recently killed pirates, all just hanging in midair with these vines sort of puncturing their bodies and old skeletons and hidden within there and they don't know this yet is going to be a, a former halfling adventurer that has a backpack filled with some interesting information about a dungeon that's that's a little bit deeper in the jungle and that's where we ended the session i thought it was a really cool point to end at i thought the session went really well and i thought everyone had a really good time so to quickly recap i think what worked well was the oppressive mood of the overall session especially once inside the the jungle while i did feel the need to alleviate it to some degree i think the pressure of that pursuit that never seemed to really relent they you know we played for a little over three hours without a break no one even made a noise to the effect of hey i need to to kind of take a quick five minute bio break i think everyone was completely engaged at all times and I think it's because they wanted to get to that point where they had some breathing room to maybe take an effective short rest. There was this sense that the jungle was alive and that the jungle itself was hunting them. I think certain facets like the screaming of the dying pirates in the background as they made their way through the jungle was kind of uh, effective in, in helping to sell that through. And I think the scene with Captain Nupo and telepathically communicating with the shadow sorcerer helped to set up a, a bigger villain in the overall piece. And, uh, and the player at the end of all that uh, said that I was scary. So I took that as a, a major badge of honor. Uh, what might not have worked so well, wasn't happy that I had to obviously fudge dice. I certainly wasn't happy that I had to give away the, the familiar piece and sort of help to prompt the players to figure that out. By the way, I don't think that's a failing on their part. That's certainly a failing on my part. I don't think I telegraphed enough that they could start to put pieces together. I wasn't able to use the flashbacks. I talked a lot about, hey, I'm going to try to use a flashback. And there were a number of instances. There was one point where I um, had them discover that there was a cobblestone road under, underneath the jungle floor, hoping that they would maybe... Uh, search down a little bit and start to see some things that could have triggered 
a flashback scene, but that never really came up. And because of the nature of the, the pressure and the tension, I wasn't going to push and I thought it would have been strange to put it in there. So didn't get to use it. I think though, I'm going to lead off uh, session two with a flashback. I think the fact that they are first level, um, is something that I'm just not wildly used to. It's been a while since I've run first level in 5e and what I discovered and what I knew, but didn't really know obviously was how squishy you are at first level and how kind of ineffective first level kind of sucks in 5e. It's not to say that I think we should have started at higher level. It's more that I wish we had a good stopping point so I could level them up to second before we get into some of the deeper opportunities within the jungle. Overall though, I'd have to say that the session went exceedingly well. I think it sets up some interesting conundrums for the second session. I really have no idea where this is going to go. If it lends itself towards, no, they need to go deeper into the jungle to get away from the pirates who are constantly pursuing them, or if the second session will be far more about securing passage off the island. The thing that I wish I had done better was, in advance, prepare a better stream of clues that would lead them to start to consider that they were being tracked by a familiar. Other than that, I was really pleased with the level of tension. I was pleased with running a session that was very different than a normal first session because we began in the middle of this real pressure cooker. I don't know where things are going, and I think that's a good thing. I think that's exactly the place that you should be as a DM from session to session. And I'm excited to find out what they're going to do next, given the situation they're in. This can go towards them actually having to figure out how to defeat the pirates to get to the water, or it could be more about figuring a way to kind of go deeper, survive in the jungle a little bit longer, at which point they're probably going to come across this dungeon. It can go either way. That's the juice of the game. That's the best stuff. That's the best place that we could be. Next time, we're going to be talking about the prep work that I have for the second session of the campaign. And that's going to be uh, really about how do I balance the different choices they can make, because honestly, the, the, the nature of the session will be wildly different depending on some of the things they choose. I think that's exactly right. That's precisely where we should be in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. And I love that. I just want to make sure that they know that they have these choices. I have a feeling at this point that maybe they think they're a little bit pigeonholed. A big part of getting ready for the next session is helping to telegraph all the options and the choices that the, the players have, as well as they're going to kick it off with what feels like a, a pretty big and deadly fight with the jungle itself. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing, throwing us a review, or sharing with your other gamer friends. Thanks for listening.